Hi, friends. This is Episode 7 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, we're so honored that you're continuing this journey with us to discover the character of God. Now, we've spent several weeks looking at how God introduced himself to the Hebrews in Egypt, and now we're going to take a shift because in this episode, we actually start a brand new series. The, the series is called The Message Inside the Miracles. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the miracles that Jesus did while he was here on earth. Now, he could have done every miracle exactly the same way, but he didn't. In fact, some of the ways that he performs these miracles are quite bizarre. And so we're going to take a look at what methodology did he use? Was he trying to tell us something about his character by the way that he performed these miracles? And I think you're going to be really surprised at some of the stories that you think you've heard all of your life. You've grown up with these stories, but when you actually look at the language, when you look at the context, and you and you actually ask the question, why in the world did he do that? Why, why would you heal someone in that way? I think you're going to be surprised at all the things that God placed there, these, these little things to find to discover more about his character. And I, I can't wait for you to go through this series because I know it's going to change you. It's going to change the way that you look at some of the stories that you perhaps have grown up with. This week, we start with a miracle that's actually two miracles. Some people see this as an interruption story or one miracle interrupting the other. But you're going to see by the end of this, and I hope you listen all the way through because I have something very, very special for you at the end of this message to show you that the times that we see interruptions, God is actually interweaving. He's interweaving stories together and people together and relationships together so that you understand what he has for you, the gift that he has in store for you. So I can't wait for you to hear it. And so get yourself ready for a big blessing today. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Number four, most Christians only follow Jesus because they want something for themselves. Most Christians only follow Jesus because they want something for themselves. Ah, most people say no. Can, can I ask why you think most people follow Jesus? Why do you think most people follow Jesus? Hold up a comment card if you don't mind commenting. Yes, sir. Yeah, I want eternal life, and I get it by following Christ. You want eternal life? Yes. Yeah. Do you think that's why most Christians follow so. Jesus? Because they want eternal life? Would that be considered something for themselves? Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately. In the back, we have a comment back here. Microphone's coming to you, sir. Uh, when I was 16, I was introduced to Jesus, and I fell in love with him. And I was with a group of people who had a similar relational experience. Yeah. So you followed Jesus because you fell in love with Jesus. I'm going to ask a question that's not on the list. If following Jesus didn't include heaven and eternal life, do you think most people would follow Jesus? Yes or no? <laughs> All right. That's the response I expected. All right. Here we go. Number five. Just keeping it real, people. Keeping it real. Since we've all been surrounded by Christians all our lives. Number five. 
Without true faith on the part of the recipient, God cannot work a miracle in that person's life. Yes or no? It's a toughie. Okay, I'm seeing a lot of no's and some yeses. Okay. You can't put a limit on what God can do? You're going to love this series. But thank you to it, because that's where I grew up thinking. But we're going to get to Mark chapter 6 when it said, and Jesus could not do any many miracles. Mark chapter 6. So we're going to get there, but that's not today. That's just a teaser for a couple of weeks from today. We are stepping into a brand new series. We just finished a series called Stranger God, the God of Exodus. And today... We are starting a brand new series. So those of you who are guests with us today, you've got no catching up to do other than figuring out what these crazy people are doing with the five different cards. Other than that, we are starting a new series, a new series called The Message in the Miracles, The Message Inside the Miracles. And what we are looking at is Jesus Christ, while he walked this earth as the Son of God, fully God, fully man. As he walked this earth, he performed miraculous signs. He healed people. He raised people from the dead. Walked on water. Broke bread. Multiplied bread and fish. He worked miracles. And you know, and I know, that Jesus did not do any miraculous act on a whim or by accident. Every single supernatural deed that Jesus performed was for a very specific reason to say a very specific something. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to take a look at several key miracles to ask the question, what was God trying to say about himself? What was God's message inside those miracles? Because God wanted to say something to his people. He only had a limited number of years that he was here on earth. He had a limited time. And in fact, just before he left, he told his disciples, I got so much more to tell you. You guys just can't bear it. So with what we do have, Jesus's supernatural acts, what can we pull out of those miracles to find the message God had implanted within them to tell us who he is and what his character is like. And that's what we're going to take a look at starting today. So if you look at your study guides, number one in the dig deep, the purple section right there, dig deep, would someone be willing to read to us Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 42? Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 42. Someone get that for us. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Okay. Jairus. Who is Jairus? What do we know about him? Okay, so he's a leader, but not just a leader. He's a leader of the synagogue. What's that? 
Okay, so we know, first of all, about Jairus. He's a leader. He's a man that can get things done. Not just a leader, he's a leader in the synagogue. I'm just going to I'm just going to uh, abbreviate here. Uh, desperate. What else? Influential. A father. What else? He's humble and he recognizes Jesus' authority. Even though he's humble and has a powerful position, he acknowledges Jesus and his authority. That's good. Out of all of that brilliance, I'm going to write humble. What religion is he? Jewish. Jewish. Okay, we know that. Sorry. I was just trying to softball it to you. There we go. Okay. So we know this about him. He's a leader, leader of synagogue. He's desperate, obviously, because what do you imagine the conversation is around the synagogue about Jesus? What do you imagine is the conversation? Positive or negative? Negative. To go to Jesus, you have to be desperate. And that's why we have desperate there. He's influential. He's a man who can get things done. He points here. He points there. And underlings run and do what he asked them to do. He's a leader. And yet this man, Jairus, who's known, this man is influential. He is, he is someone who is a household name. How do I know that? Because his name is mentioned in the Bible. Exactly. There are no names mentioned in the Bible that you would not be uh, supposed to already know. He's somebody. He's a man who can write a check and fix it. He's a man who can make a command and fix it. Can just point and fix it. But in this situation... He can't write a check to fix his daughter. He can't instruct any of his underlings to fix his daughter. There is nothing he can do, and he comes to the moment where he says, this is a job for Jesus. How many of you have come to that point in your life? To where there's nothing in your power that you can change reality, and you come to the moment on your on your knees and most likely your hands too, and you say, this is a job for Jesus. No one else can fix it. This is Jairus. We have a comment back here. He had probably already been to all the doctors of the day and had asked for their help, and they probably weren't able to do anything. You bring up a great point. Because we're about to meet a second character in this story who had been to all the doctors of the day. So you were most likely correct. He had used up every possible opportunity to help his daughter go from sick to well, and now she's going from sick to dead. And now walks on a second character in this story. I love this story. In Luke chapter 8, um, it, of course, it's, it's also, this story is also recorded in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. But I, I, I love most of Luke chapter 8 because it includes all the details except for one. In Mark chapter 5, I think it's verse 6, uh, when, he, when he says what's actually going on inside the woman's mind. Other than that, Luke 8, um, I think, covers more ground than, than the other two. 
We come to verse 43 in chapter 8. Would someone be willing to read verse 43? Thank you. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Someone comes up to Jesus, whispers in his ear, says, my daughter's dying. Can you please come help? Jesus says, sure. He's in a crowd. And the words that are used in Scripture for this crowd, uh, what does what your Bible say? What type of crowd is it? Almost crushed. A multitude. Pushing and jostling. Some translations say a pressing crowd. The, the actual literal translation, you can go uh, two different phrases for the, uh, the Greek that's used here. And one means to hem one in, and the other phrase means to hold one prisoner. Okay, so the word that's used there that is translated as a great multitude or pressing in, it, it means they've hemmed him in and he can't go anywhere. He's held prisoner. He's come ashore on a boat. People have heard he's coming. They crowd him and they press in as if he's Mr. Super Celebrity and he can't move anywhere. And somehow, probably desperation, Jairus gets in to Jesus' ear. Please, my daughter's dying. Can you come? Jesus says yes. And as they begin to make their way to Jairus' home, it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't do what he does with a centurion. What's he do with a centurion when a child is in danger? He says, I'll phone this one in. You're good. Go home. They're well. Jesus doesn't do that here. And I am convinced he doesn't do it, first of all, because he's God and God knows everything. And God knew that while he was taking a step this way, that another story would interrupt. While he's going about his business to do this, there's a woman at the side of the road along the way. And you and I, all, uh, we all know that life is not about getting from A to B, is it? Because when I asked how many of you, your lives are filled with interruptions, almost all cards went up yes. Life is not about the destination. It's about the things that happen along the way. God has a woman on the side of the road. And while we are all focused on the important leader, the guy who has clout, the guy who has position, if Jesus heals that girl, what will that do for the Jewish church? They'll have to acknowledge that Jesus really is who he claims to be. What everyone is saying about him, this is the Messiah. So while everyone is focused on leadership, something else is happening. There's a woman in verse 43 that interrupts this story. So who's this woman? What's her name? No name? The Bible doesn't mention her by name? Why? She's not significant. In the Christian story of how the church develops and whatever happens in the rest of her life, she's not a Dorcas. She's not a Sapphira. She's not any female of significance enough for them to even write her name. 
Jairus, significant. Household name, woman, insignificant. We don't even know her name. I'm going to get to Raul because I know it's going to be good, and then I'm going to go on to the next question. You got it. Go. I think I know her name. Ah. Oh, excuse me for, for that. But uh, I think her name is Courageous. Uh, um, think of this. It is you know, now. <laughs> it is now. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, um, women were banned from going to the temple. They could only access the court. But this woman had a disease that banned her from for every, every place. She could not go to the temple court because of the bleeding. Yes. She was banned from the temple court. Yep. She was banned from, um, from the market, mm-hmm. from the uh, synagogue, mm-hmm. from um, every place where people would be. Yes. The well. Mm-hmm. She w- she uh, it was prohibited for her Absolutely. to be in any place where other human beings would be. Even her own family could reject her, and there she is, desperate. And uh, she, of course, she could not approach any man. And this is a crowd of men, and she is not. She there is nothing that stops her going to Jesus. Yeah. That's why I named her Courageous. Absolutely. Uh, and I think of myself, you know, what would I do if mm. I were in, in her situation? Perfect. Hang on. There's a card for that. <laughs> I'm just going to, whenever I hand you the mic, I'm just going to grab this. There was one other issue. One other issue. She was not allowed to touch a rabbi. Not allowed to touch a rabbi. Yes, over here, Dan. Let me offer another observation. I think there's no name there because she represents most of us. Mm. And I think by the end of today, we're all going to agree. You asked that early question, significant. Mm -hmm. And the number of no's suggests that any of us also may come close enough to touch him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Pastor Dan. This woman is not known by a name. She's known by an issue. What's her issue? She has an issue of blood. Okay. Those of you King James people, you're like, yes, he finally said it correctly. The issue of the woman with the issue of blood. She's known by an issue. She is not known by a name. She's known by an issue. How many of us in different times of our life allow the issue to become so big that our issue becomes our identity. And we're no longer known by our identity, but we're known by our issues. She's a woman with an issue. Mike. I was kind of going to go down that same aisle. They knew how long she had had this illness, 20 years. Yes, yes. So she was known in the community. It wasn't that she was unknown, but she was insignificant. Great point. Because they knew how long, so they obviously knew her, which you're hurting me, Mike, because uh, just two weeks ago, I was driving on Alabama uh, toward Target. 
You know, it's just as you come over the free when you come down. And, and two homeless guys, one with a shopping cart, are cutting through the road. They're not at the crosswalk. They're cutting through the traffic. It's pretty heavy. And a box falls off at, at the bottom of the shopping cart. And the guy stops. He's, I literally was so glad I was paying attention because I easily could have hit him because I didn't expect people walking across the road there. And uh, he puts the box back on and he goes and I continue. And as I look at these two guys, I'm like, I don't recognize these guys. And it made me realize, I recognize most of the homeless people around here. I see them often enough. I know them by face. And I recognized who was new. This woman was known. She was known in her community. But she was banished from her community. Because her church did not help her. Back then, the church did not help you. The church was actually a deficit to her. Because it meant that no one could touch her. Her family couldn't hug her. Her husband couldn't provide a home for her. She was banished. She wasn't supposed to be in town. She was supposed to live outside of town because of the issue of blood and Levitical uh, teaching on these people are supposed to be outside the city. Exactly. So... Someone please read verse 44. Verse 44. She had spent every penny she had on doctors, but not one had been able to help her. She slipped in from behind and touched the edge of Jesus' robe. So she comes up behind. Uh, I wish I could spend more time. She spent everything she had. Luke, what he does differently in this story is he treats doctors a little bit more kind. He removes some of the suggestions that there might have been quackery going on, which the other Gospels uh, point to. He says it a little bit more professionally because he's a doctor himself. But he does include, she gave all her money for every possible remedy and nothing worked. Elizabeth. Okay. Here we go. Elizabeth told me she's been, she's been ready for I this. I have studied this for years. She has studied this for five years, and she has been waiting for this Bible lab. <laughs> so it's going to be good. Get your love it cards ready. Okay. We're going to do what did she touch. You touched on it, that she's not supposed to touch a rabbi. Yes. If you know anything about the Jewish culture, mm-hmm. you know that they wear the four-corner garment. Yes, called on a talif. The four-corner garment is uh-huh. four knots that represent... The Torah, the first four books of the Bible, which yes. Jesus did fulfill the letter of the law. Yes. So when she touched that, she pulled the word of God to the point of her need. Where is the love it card? I've got mine buried here. What she's talking about is a square garment called a talif. The square garment was, was worn by teachers. You look out today, you saw a whole bunch of regalia for graduation time. And you see all these things hanging all over them. They've got, you know, not only the black gown, but then they, uh, they've got these hoods and all kinds of stuff. What is this all about? And tassels hanging here and stuff hanging there and medals here and there. A rabbi teacher was visibly noticeable because of the talif that they would wear. It had to be perfectly square. And just like Elizabeth shared, there were four tassels, two in the front and two that hung in the back. If you want to know what they look like, they were about a finger's length long. Uh, 
And depending on the commentator that you read from, it was either three white threads and a hyacinth purple thread, or four white threads and one hyacinth purple thread. In any case, one purple, three or four white. Those hung down, two in front, two in the back, which tells us something. She didn't touch Jesus. She didn't even touch something that was touching Jesus. Scripture tells us that on the talif, that she touched something that if you write it in English, if you can read my handwriting, tzitzi is what you call that tassel. So my guess is she touched the tassel thinking, if I touch something closer and grab it, he's going to feel it. But if I grab that tassel, he'll never know. Not in this crowd. God has enough power inside of him as Jesus Christ that all someone had to do was touch a tassel and they get healed. That's power. Huge power. Thank you. We're going to come back to that because there's a connection even with the girl with that. It's a really cool connection. Someone please read for us verses 45 to 48. Verses 45 to 48. Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? <laughs> Silly question, right? He's God. He knows if he can know the thoughts of people, did he seriously not know who touched him? What do you think Jesus is doing here? Why did he ask who touched me? What do you think? What's he doing here? I think he's drawing attention to the fact of her faith and that she was healed because of it. He's making a point. Once again, you've got to go back. Beginning of the story, someone of significance to the community, someone of insignificance to the community. There is significance to both in God's eyes. Everyone's attention was on Jairus. Jesus brings attention to the woman. I want to share with you an experience that had a powerful influence on me and my wife. She had a surgery for an infection when she was young, and then four other surgeries. And my wife told me, if this recurrent infection affects one more time, I'd rather die. In one night, she woke me up. She says, I cannot bear this. This pain is unbearable. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to another, another surgery. I said, let's pray. So I prayed. And within minutes, she was sound asleep. Mm -hmm. That's 50 years ago. She's still alive. Thanks, God. Amen. Thank you so much, Nick, for sharing. Let's look at the other side of this question. Because as Peter and the disciples are recorded as saying, uh, teacher, uh, that's kind of a silly question. What do you mean? You were held prisoner here. You were hemmed in here. What do you mean who touched you? We're all here jostling around. Of course people are touching you. 
This brings up a very important spiritual point. The disciples had given up everything to follow Jesus. The people had given up daily work, daily wages, given up their own free time to follow Jesus. But nobody touched Jesus. Nobody experienced the power of Jesus. They had made sacrifices. They had gotten into physical proximity of Jesus, but no one was touching Jesus. How many of us, all our lives, we have followed Jesus, put ourselves in the right place, in the right Bible lab group, and we're getting to know God, but we're not touching God. This one hurts. Because Jesus says, you can literally brush up against me and never touch me. Huge, huge. For sake of time, I need us to jump down to the bottom of that first page where it says, and now back to our regularly scheduled program. We got to go to Jairus' house. Someone please read for us verses 49 to 56. Verses 49 to 56. Thank you, Dwight. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Up till now, I've been referring to the two miracles within Luke chapter 8 as an interruption. Because to us, it appears that this woman is an interruption in the midst of Jesus working a miracle, raising a girl to life. But my question is, is it possible that the message that God is writing here is not that he'll do things when he's interrupted, but that there is an interweaving of these two stories? What similarities do you see between the woman's healing and the girl's healing. The mics are here. Raise your card so they can make sure and get you a mic. What are some of these similarities that you see? The daughter was 12 years old. Okay. The woman had had the issue for 12 years. Very good. Who else? They both had faith. Yes. Well, J. Iris did. Yeah. Yes. Okay. What else? Similarities. Yes, Raul. It's, it's surprising for in the Jewish, com uh, Jewish uh, community that Jesus would praise 
the face of a woman. That's very unusual and surprising. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was absolutely outrageous to the Pharisees that Jesus would praise the faith of a woman. Uh, for one reason is that in, in that time, uh, for, uh, you know, the religious leaders uh, believed that the, the, the fate of salvation of a woman depended on the husband. Mm -hmm. There's no husband here in the story, and it's a woman that was banished from society, and Jesus praises her faith. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, um, absolutely. We're going to come back to, in, in a future session within this series, talking about that phrase. So we'll keep this story in mind, but there are several times Jesus points to an individual and says, it wasn't me, it was you. Your faith made you whole. So we're going to come back to that. So we've got to keep this story in, in mind while we do that. Yes. Pulling the word of God into the point of their need. I'm sorry, uh, say that again. Pulling the word of God to the point of their need. Jesus was the word made flesh, and then when the woman touched the four points of the garment, she also pulled the word of God to the point of her need. Yes, okay. Both had a faith that was so passionately desiring the intervention of Christ. And they, in that, that passionate and you know, desire and that faith and hope that Jesus was able to give them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right up here, Esther. The stories are about females. Good. Daughters aren't as important as sons in the yes. Bible. Yes. And women aren't as important as men. Yes. Difference? Yes. Well, the woman was so humble that she was content to touch the robe as he passed by. But Jairus needed, like, a personal attention. Like, you have to come to my house. Yes. And give me some one-on-one -on -one private attention. Yes. One was coming to Jesus. One was coming behind Jesus. Yeah, exactly. For sake of time, can I share with you my list? And I knew I wouldn't have time. Sounds like my ride's here. <laughs> so I made a list. The... The interweaving between the two stories. Both are dying. Both of them are in a crisis. One is a mature woman. The other is a young girl. One, Jesus is going from. The other, Jesus is going to. As was mentioned, one is 12 years sick. One is 12 years old. As the affliction grew in the woman, the girl grew into her affliction. One represents the mature generation. The other represents the coming generation. One of them receives life, and as she receives life, one loses life. One is healed by touching the tassel on Jesus' outer teacher's robe, she is healed. But this is the beauty as you look at if the woman is represented by the mature generation and the girl is represented by the coming generation, it means that the mature generation is healed, but the coming generation will receive resurrection. 
as the woman touches the robe of Jesus, as her fingerprints are right there touching the tassel on Jesus' garment, two hands are connected. Because the Bible specifically talks about hands here quite a bit compared to any other place. A woman's hand touches Jesus' garment. And while the fingerprints of this woman's hand are still there, Jesus makes his way to the girl and he touches her hand, connecting the two generations. In essence, connecting their hands. It was against Levitical law to touch a dead person. Jesus says, I can not only heal the former, but I can resurrect the latter, even if it goes against what you've always taught. Today, my greatest hope is knowing that even though God has done mighty things in the past, his message to us today is that he has even mightier things for the future. What message do we see out of this, an interweaving of two stories, is that God is bringing our generation, the generation that most people said, while, while you were maturing into who you are, they said you were the lost generation, didn't they? You're godless, you're reading Nietzsche, you're reading all that, you're, you're lost. God says, no, I brought healing to the previous generation. To you, I have resurrection. I have something greater for you. Wow, is that good news or what? That's why they call it good news. I, I think we got to start calling it the best news because that's the best news of all. Now, I encourage you to join us for episode eight because I have a very special guest leading out. He's part of our community. You don't want to miss it. He's going to be talking about a miracle that you've heard about before, but I'm telling you, you will never see this miracle the same way again. So I encourage you to come back and listen to episode eight. I also want to encourage you to visit our website, thebiblelab.com. There you'll find more information about our community, and also it'll give you a chance in a really easy way to click on the links to our social media accounts. And that way you can connect with us through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, whatever is your favorite. We have some great announcements coming out about some resources that we've developed and we're going to be releasing. And I want you to be the first to hear about it so that you're in the know. So thanks so much for joining us. And I just pray that God continues making himself known to you as you continue to grow stronger and closer to the beautiful God that we serve. We'll see you next episode. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 1030 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.